this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. Praise God for our visitors. If you're here with us for the first time, uh, we are so glad that you uh, chose to worship with us this morning. We pray that you will uh, be relaxed and take your shoes off if you want to and enjoy the fellowship. The, the title of today's sermon is The Amazing Gift of Jesus. The Amazing Gift of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at the first verse. If you don't have your Bibles, of course you can follow us on the screen. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nepotelia. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle torment and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. The amazing, the amazing gift of Jesus. The amazing gift of Jesus. On April 29th, 2011, uh, for a few hours it seemed that the whole world stood still as Prince William a.k.a. the Duke of Cambridge, whatever that means, I don't know. And uh, Kate Middleton, now known as the, the, the York of something, the Duchess of York, amen? Uh, they, they got married. They came together in holy matrimony. And people from all over the world tuned in to watch it. In fact, in America, just about every major news program or a news station had it on. They were showing this, this glorious union, widely televised. It can be argued that William and, and Kate, Prince William and, and Princess Kate is the, uh, the most popular and watched uh, couple throughout the world. Uh, the paparazzi are constantly following them. 
People in all over the world, in every country, know their name. Everybody wants to know what's going on with them. A few weeks ago, they announced that they were having their, their first child. And the media went in an instant frenzy. In fact, Kate had a little morning sickness. And you would have thought that it was the first time that a pregnant woman had morning sickness. She was hospitalized. They reported every single detail of it uh, because everybody is interested in them. Uh, this child, whenever it's born, if it is a boy, will be, in a matter of moments, the biggest news on social media. Everyone will try to get a, a picture of this child, especially if it's a son. If it's a son, the, the boy will uh, fall in line to be the third uh, male or the third person uh, uh, with a right to, to kingship. Of course, Prince Charles is number one, then followed by William, and then this child uh, will, will be next. Harry, who is uh, Prince William's brother, will be now marked or, or knocked down to the fourth spot. This child is, could be uh, a future king. This child could be uh, the, the future for, for Britain, for England. Everyone's eyes is upon this child. This nation, it looks to the royal family for hope. They look to the royal family for encouragement. They look to the royal family as if they were actually their family. Some people, when they look to the royal family, they're able to escape the mess of their own lives because they see a fairy tale. They see how life is supposed to be. In Isaiah chapter 9, God uses the prophet Isaiah to restore hope to the faithful remnant of Judah by pointing them to a royal child that would one day be born. And we now know, looking back on this prophecy, that that child spoken of here is Jesus. And Isaiah is relaying the message to Judah that in spite of their current situation, that God had not forgotten them. And that God would restore and deliver them. And he would do so through, through this child. See, God had promised Abraham, their forefather, that through his descendants the world would be blessed. And God had promised David that his throne would lead to the world's salvation. But by Isaiah's time, the descendants of Abraham and, and many members of the dynasty of David no longer trusted the promises of God. And as a nation, they begin to handle their problems just like non-Jews. Instead of standing firm in faith, they begin to handle their problems with fear and turn away from God. These people, this remnant, those who were faithful in Judah, needed, needed to hear some hope. For their world had turned dark, and their world was full of discouragement. As we go through this text today, we're going to move through it with three things in mind. We're going to move through it first noting a, a powerful darkness. And after that, we're going to look at the promised light. And after that, we'll look at the, the prominent sun, Israel, Judah. Is, is full of a, a powerful darkness. Israel is in deep, deep, deep trouble. 
And instead of running to God, as I said, in the midst of their trouble, they are running away from God. Here's the situation. There's a king by the name of Ahaz. And Ahaz is a, a, a young king. You can read this in 2 Kings chapter 15 through 16. And he's come to be king at around the age 20. And the Bible says that Ahaz was not a good king. Ahaz was a wicked man, and he did not do righteousness in, 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 in the sight of God. Ahaz uh, actually sacrificed his own children and believed in the sacrifice of children. He was a, a bitter, bitter man. Well, Abraham, uh, I'm sorry, Ahaz finds himself in a, in, a, in a difficult situation. He finds himself in some deep waters. See, there was a world power by the name of Assyria. And the Assyrians, they were just marching through nation after nation, city after city. It was a world power up until that point like never before. And this is taking place in about 722 B.C., about seven centuries before Jesus came to the earth. So the Assyrians are just wreaking havoc. Well, in the midst of them wreaking havoc, we learn that Syria uh, and the Ephraimites, northern Israel, they come together and they make an alliance. And they say, we're going to put our forces together and we're going to defeat the Assyrians. And they come to Ahaz and they say, yo, Ahaz, uh, we know it's bad blood between us and we know that we've been fighting each other. But for the sake of our kingdoms, we need to come together and we need to fight against the Assyrians. And then in chapter 7, verse 2, we read how Ahaz responded. Chapter 7, verse 2. Listen to his response to them coming to him. And it says, And when the house of David was told Syria is in the league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Do you see that? His heart shook, it says, as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. All of Israel was sorely afraid when they heard that Syria and northern Israel was now going to turn their back on Judah. And not only did Ahaz and Judah have to worry about the Assyrians, but now they have to worry about the nations nearest them. And they became afraid. They became afraid. Fear itself is not a sin. Fear itself is not a sin. Fear is an emotion. And God gives us emotion. And sometimes fear can be a good emotion because we are put in certain situations and we know that this could be a life or death situation. And that fear comes in our heart to, to help us to respond quickly or to think with a more concise thought pattern. But fear becomes a sin when we allow it to take us away from God. When we allow it to overshadow our faith from God. The Bible says that they were sorely afraid. Fear becomes sin when we allow it to drive us to despair, when we allow it to make us anxious, when we allow it to worry us, when we allow it to drive us to false idols, to false sanctuaries, thinking that these idols and these sanctuaries can save us. Even though we're celebrating Christmas right now, 
There's a lot of people in this room who is sorely afraid. In your hearts of hearts, you are shaking like the trees of a forest when a mighty wind comes through. And on Christmas Day, you'll have hope. Maybe you'll, you'll get up and you'll, you'll celebrate Christmas, but you know that after Christmas, reality is going to set back in and you will go back into that mold of fearing. You'll go back into that mold of panicking. Some of us in here, we, we fear people. We are so afraid to be rejected by people. And we obsess over what people think about us. Throughout the day, we, we speak to ourselves and we say, you know what, I don't measure up. You know what, no one loves me. You know what, I'm the black sheep of the family. Some of you in here, you've even fantasized about taking your own life. And you've thought, what would it be like if I was to commit suicide? Would, would anyone miss me? Does anyone care? Because you're afraid. You're afraid to be alone. You're afraid that you may fail and people may see you as a failure. Fear is, is manifested in, in many ways and it breeds a sense of, of hopelessness. Some of you are sitting in here and you, you're hopeless. You're afraid that your situation will never change, that your marriage will never improve. You're afraid that life will always be stale. You're afraid that your spouse would never change. Some high school students, you're afraid that you're not smart enough, that you won't be able to go to college and, and get a good job. So you, in fear, you go inward and you act as if you're disinterested in school. And you don't want to call out for help because you're afraid that if you try, you'll be even more disappointed. Some of us with our fears, we go inward. We don't fellowship with God's people. We run in the church and we run out. We hide and we put on a show and we put on a facade. Even during the Christmas season, some of us are shaken. Some of us are afraid because we thought that that this Christmas was going to be the year that the Lord allowed us to, to celebrate Christmas with a child of our own. Or this year was going to be the Christmas that, that maybe my boyfriend or my girlfriend said, yes, I'll marry you. All of us have fear, and our hearts at any given time of the day can be tempted to be afraid. And some of us this week, we have been off balance all week long because fear has set in. The Assyrians, Syria, Ephraim is scaring us, and we're panicking. God's message for us today, God's message for us for this Christmas and for the rest of the week, the rest of the year, and the rest of our lives is this, that God meets us in our fear with the amazing gift of Jesus. God meets us in our fear with the amazing gift of Jesus. No matter what your heart is fearing, God wants you to know that you can stand upright and you can face that fear with faith because of the gift that he's given through his son. This is the message that God wanted to teach King Ahaz. This is the message that he wanted Judah to know. It's, it's quite interesting. In chapter 7, verse 7 uh, and, and 8, we see this. God goes to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. 
and he gives him a message. Isaiah said, listen, Ahaz, God has a message for you. And this is the message. He says, listen, don't worry about Syria. And don't worry about Ephraim. He says, in fact, in 65 years, no one will be speaking of it because I will wipe them off the face of the earth. He says, but instead, trust in me. I love what he says in verse 9. Listen to this exact phrase. He says, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remela. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He says, if you don't stand firm and have faith in me that I can deliver you, your life is going to be off balance. And that's God's message to us as we face our fears. That if we're not firm in faith in God, that our life is going to be easily put off balance. And then God does something strange. He does something unique, something that, that he, wants, he wants Ahaz to know. Ahaz, I'm with you. He uses a phrase that we see in Judges in the story of Gideon. Isaiah goes and he tells Ahaz, he says, God says, test them. God says, ask me to perform a test for you. Tell me to do something so that I can prove to you I'm with you. And the Bible says that Ahaz, instead of saying, Lord, would you do this and prove uh, that you're with me by doing this, instead of doing that, that Ahaz refused to test the Lord. He refused to put his faith and his trust in the Lord. And God says, listen, if you would have tested me, I would have told you that I'm going to allow a child to be born and his name would be Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. In chapter 8, we see Isaiah has a boy and Isaiah names the boy. And he names the boy and he gives the boy a name that pretty much means judgment. That God is going to judge Israel because of its faithlessness. I believe that God was speaking to the prophet and speaking to Ahaz and, and, and letting Ahaz know that, that a child is going to be born through Isaiah and this child, this young child is going to be assigned to you that I am with you. But instead, this prophecy in Manuel, this prophecy of this child that is going to be born is not going to be fulfilled in Ahaz's day because he did not look to God in faith. But it will one day be fulfilled. Be firm in faith. Or do not be firm at all. God calls us as Christians during this season to reflect and to remind ourselves that God is with us. The birth of Jesus points to the fact that he has not forsaken us and that we do not have to be afraid. So in chapter 8, the prophet Isaiah is talking to Israel, to the remnant of Israel. He's talking to those who are faithful in Israel. And he is trying to remind them that even though Ahaz and even though all of Judah and all of Israel is in a frenzy right now, that those who believe in, in the God of, of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, that they have nothing to be afraid. So he is preaching to them. He is preaching to them to have faith. And at chapter 8, verse 13, he says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. Don't fear what's going on around you. During this time, let me be who you fear. See me as holy. And then in verse 14, in the midst of darkness, God continues to speak to him. He says, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the house of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God, in, our, in the midst of our fears, wants to be a sanctuary. And either he will be our sanctuary or he will be 
a snare. Chapter 8, verse 17, Isaiah is still preaching to Israel in the midst of this, to Judah in the midst of the sermon. Listen to what he says. He says, I will wait for the Lord. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. God is calling his remnant. In the midst of a fiscal cliff, in the midst of a, a, a possible recession, in the midst of the decline of marriage and the decline of morals, in the midst of our own personal heartbreaks, to, to not allow our hearts to shake like a tree in the forest when the wind blows. But he's telling us to stand firm and to trust him in the midst of our darkest hours. Dear friend, will you take God to his word? So we see a powerful darkness that is going on in Judah. But the next thing we see is a promised light. We see a promised light. In the midst of this dark, dark chapter, we see a promised light in chapter 9. The word of God says, And there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephetilia. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. So here we see that God gives a prophecy and he prophesizes that something unique is going to happen near Galilee. And in verse 2 he says, for the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shine. So in the midst of their dark state, God promises that he's going to send forth a mighty light and he says this is going to be done in, the, in Galilee. It's going to be done in these two areas of Zebulun and Nephetilia. He says a light is going to show up. And this is amazing because Galilee, Galilee was a, a very broken place. Galilee was a very beat up place. Galileans were seen as, as nothing almost. They, they were filled with hope. And why is God telling them that this is going to come in Galilee? Because after Ahaz was afraid, and after the Assyrians came, he refused to put his faith in Jesus. And then what he did is he took gold, and he took his wealth, and he gave it to the Assyrians, and he made a pact with them. He says, listen, I'll give you our gold if you will not attack us. And the Assyrians agreed, okay, you give us your gold, we won't attack you. But how do you know that that was a false hope. Just like our idols, when we're afraid and we run away from God, we run to other stuff, it's a false hope. It may give us fulfillment for a second. It may help us to escape into our fantasy world for a minute. But it's soon going to fade. It's soon going to leave. And that's exactly what happened with Ahaz. And eventually the Assyrians came, and they came back on their word, and they attacked not only northern Israel, but they attacked Judah. And guess what was the first nation to get hit? It was Galilee. Because Assyria, as they came across the Fertile Crescent, Galilee was the first nation. And whenever Israel, whenever Judah was attacked, Galilee would be the first nation that would be hit, and they would always be hit the hardest. But God promises that one day this nation that is associated with lowliness, that one day this nation that is associated with brokenness, that one day this nation will be able to rejoice. 
because a light is coming and it will shine. And look at how, how God explains it. Why, why in the world would God come to, to Galilee? Why in the world would he do this? Why in the world would he allow a light and a glorious way to be made for him? In chapter 9, verse 7, the last part of verse 7, it says, For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God says that this nation, that this, I'm sorry, this town, this community is going to be restored. It's going to have good fortunes. It's going to experience this glorious light because God is zealous for his people. What does zeal mean? Zeal in the Hebrew lexicon, lexicon means to be, to be jealous. It's a word that is cognated with an Arabic verb meaning to become intensely red, suggesting the idea of, of color flooding a person's face with the flush of deep emotion within. Ray Ortland, when he talks about this word, he says that this Hebrew word was often used for a husband's jealous love for his wife. We see that in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 34. For the love that burns in the hearts of a bride and a groom. We see this in songs, the Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 9. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 13, it compares God with a warrior who is psyching himself up before a battle for war. And it says that God stirs himself up with zeal. In other words, God is not a, a half-emotional, wishy-washy personality. When it comes to his people, when it comes to fulfilling his promise, God is zealous. He is on fire for his people. He is on fire to bring salvation to us. You may be a Galilean today. You may feel like everything in your life has, has led you to be a bitter, broken person. You may look at your past and say, I've been stepped on, walked over, talked about. Does God love me? And I come to tell you that God loves his people. And all those who will put his faith, their faith and trust in him, they are able to put their faith and trust in him because he is full of zeal and he has made up his mind to save you and bring salvation to you just like he did Galilee. And the Bible says that this joy that the Galileans will have, that it will be an inexpressible joy. Salvation, when God brings it to a person, a person has a, a joy that is inexpressible. A joy that goes beyond mere happiness. A joy that goes beyond being excited about a raise or about some, some extra money for the holidays. It is a joy that is inexplicable. And that's what the rest of these verses, verses 2 through 5, is, is pointing to. An inexplicable joy that God will one day fill this broken town with. He describes this joy. He says it's going to be an inexplicable joy. He says you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in ballot and battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So he says, Galilee, one day you will rejoice. And he gives three illustrations. He says, one day you will rejoice like a farmer who has received a great harvest. 
They would have been like, what? We're poor. One day you will rejoice like a farmer who receives a great harvest. One day, he says, you will rejoice. And look at this. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. One day you will rejoice like Gideon in Israel. When they defeated the Midianites with just 300 soldiers, started off as an army of 32,000, God said, y'all going to battle with too many people. If y'all go to battle and win, y'all going to be stuck up and think too highly of yourself. I want you to scale the 32,000 down to about 300, and then we'll go to war. And the Bible says they went to war with 300, and God delivered them. He says, one day, just like Gideon, when he rejoiced, one day you will rejoice. Then he says, one day you will rejoice like warriors who stand over a bonfire that is filled and fueled by the enemy's garments. <laughs> That's an amazing picture. That's an amazing picture. Well, how is this going to happen? It's going to happen through a prominent sun. We see a powerful darkness. We see a, a promised a, 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 a promise light, and now we are going to see a prominent sun. A prominent sun? One day you will rejoice because of a prominent son, for to us a child is born. Now, if I'm hearing Isaiah preach this passage, and Isaiah is talking about how one day we're going to win and all these great things are going to happen, I'm expecting the next thing he's going to say is because I'm going to raise up another army that's going to help you. Or I'm going to raise up a, a strong king, but he says a, a child. I'd be like, wait a minute, God, we got Syria, we got Ephraim. <laughs> We got a Syrian. Who's going? A child. He says, a child is going to save you. And this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus, we know. We know that Jesus is the one who brought salvation to the Galileans and to the world. And we know that Galilee was the first to, to be able to eat of Jesus, the fruit of Jesus' ministry. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says that after John the Baptist had died, that Jesus came into Galilee preaching, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe in the good news. In the next three or four chapters in the book of Mark, we see Jesus is in Galilee, and a light has shown. We see that Jesus is in Galilee, and he came not to the wealthiest part of Israel. He didn't go to Jerusalem, he went to the lowliest place in order to fulfill this prophecy. He went to the busted and disgusted. He went to those who were afraid and those who were not putting their faith in Jesus. He went to those who could not help themselves. That's exactly what Mary rejoices of in, in Luke chapter 1. In Mary's carol, the first Christmas hymn, she rejoiced that, that, that God did not start off with some great person or go to Jerusalem, but that God started off and he allowed his ministry to come through those who were broken. She said he has shown strength in his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those who are of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. When we talk about Christmas and we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, we celebrate the son who comes, we celebrate the fact that he does not come to proud people, but he comes to weak people. He does not save people who think that they can save themselves, but he saves Galileans. I am and I was a Galilean. And you 
were once Galileans. And we needed a son to come. And who did he say? He said, unto us a son came. And to us a child is born. Who is the us? He's writing to Israel and to Judah. Us, a people who did not love God at that time. He said, a son is going to be born to you, Judah, in spite of you. Salvation is going to come to you, Galilee, in spite of you. You're not a victim. You're running around here chasing after false gods. You're running around here and you're allowing Ahaz to, 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 to set up uh, false idols all throughout Judah. And you're bowing to these idols. He says, but in spite of you, I'm going to save you. And that's the message of salvation, that in spite of us, when we were in deep darkness, when we were not loving God, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that God said, unto you a child will be born. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. This is a gift. Jesus is a gift. Jesus is grace manifested. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. And that light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. That's what Isaiah says, a glorious light is going to come. That light is coming into the world. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son. Unto you, a son is born a child is given and he was full of grace and truth and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace we have all received a salvation that we could not earn and that we do not deserve what about this child what is going to be so amazing about this child we see in verse 6 for unto us this child is born instead of having fear we need to unwrap this amazing gift that is Jesus, and to us this child is born, Jesus is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. I love that. This child is going to be called Wonderful Counselor. When we're steeped in our fears, when we're afraid about the future, when we're looking at our lives in despair, we have to remind ourselves that God meets us in our fear with the amazing gift of Jesus. What's so amazing about Jesus? What's so amazing about Jesus is not just that he's a counselor. I've been in some messed up counselors. But what's so amazing about Jesus is that he is a wonderful counselor. He is a wonderful counselor, the Bible says. And we know that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy throughout his ministry. The Bible shows us his, his counseling ministry in John 4 when Jesus counseled a woman who was at the well. A woman who had a messed up life. A woman who had been promiscuous and who had had her heart broken by three different husbands. And who had probably given up on marriage and now she's living with a man. Jesus told her, this fourth man that you're with, he's not even your husband. Jesus took the time when everybody else talked about him when everybody else walked over her, when everybody else looked at her with self-righteousness, Jesus took the time to give her some counsel. And I'm so glad that it wasn't just counsel, but it was wonderful counsel. 
The Bible says that he counseled her so well, so dope, so fresh, that she went back to her community and she told everybody, everybody who had walked over her, everybody who had talked about her, she said, y'all need to come with me. I have met a man. And when you meet Jesus, you meet a wonderful counselor. And you don't mind telling your enemies, I met somebody. We used to be at war together, but I met somebody. I used to talk about you, but I met somebody. I used to couldn't stand you, but I met somebody. And I'm going to call him wonderful, a wonderful counselor. Some of you are in fear right now, boiling in fear, wondering how you're going to make it through tomorrow, wondering how that light bill is going to be paid, wondering how you're going to make it over the hump. I want to recommend somebody to you, and his name is Jesus. Jesus can be a counselor. The Bible can be your counselor. Over 300 times in the scriptures, we read the commandment to fear not, to take courage, to be strong. When we pick up our word and we read these promises, we've got to take those promises as our promises. We can't be like Ahaz and be like, no, nah, I don't need you. If you do like Ahaz, you're going to find yourself in a worse situation. But when you sit at the foot of the counselor, like Mary sat at the foot of Jesus, in the midst of busyness, in the midst of your schedule, when you break away from God and get that counsel, he counsels us to fear not. He counsels us with care. The psalmist said in Psalm chapter 46, he says, God says, I will counsel you and I will keep my eye upon you. He says, I'm not just going to counsel you and leave you to yourself, but I'm going to make sure that I see you through this situation. You don't need office hours for this counselor. He's always got his eye on you. He's always watching over you. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on a sparrow. And he's always watching. Touch your neighbor and say, he's watching over me. He's a wonderful counselor. He goes on to say he's going to be called a mighty God. A mighty God. That's what the Christmas story is all about. Is that not only is Jesus able to give us counsel, but Jesus is mighty. Jesus is strong. A, a mighty God. We see God's might when he shows up to Mary and says, Mary, I'm going to allow a child to be born from within you. Mary says, but Jesus, uh, but, but angel Gabriel, listen, how am I going to have a child when I've never known a man? Oh, and, and, and the angel looked at him and said, but the Holy Spirit shall overpower you, overshadow you, and you will con conceive. Jesus, God, we serve a mighty God. We see the same thing with Elizabeth. Elizabeth is with child. And we read that, uh, that Elizabeth has the same type of, of experience when an angel comes to her and says that, that you are about to bear a child. And Elizabeth goes through the same motions. But the angel told Elizabeth, with God, all things are possible. I've come to tell you real quick that when Jesus is the gift that you unwrap for Christmas, God will show up and show out. And he'll remind you in the midst of your fears that with me, all things are possible. I wonder when the angel said that to Elizabeth, 
Did he think about all the times that he had been by God, with God, and seen God make a way out of no way? I wonder when he said that to Elizabeth, did he have a flashback to the time when Abraham and Sarah was barren? And some angels showed up to them. And he said, Sarah, you're about to conceive a child. I wonder if he thought about Samson when Samson was mocked and his eyes was plucked out and put between two pillars. And the Bible says that God gave Samson the strength to push over those pillars. I wonder if that angel thought about the time when God was with Moses and Israel and when their back was against the wall and Pharaoh was before them. And the Bible says that God parted the Red Sea. I wonder if he thought about the time when Gideon was outnumbered. I wonder if he thought about the time when David fought Goliath. We serve a mighty God. Jesus was a mighty, mighty, mighty God. And being a mighty God don't always mean you have to show off your strength. Sometimes being a mighty God means that you come in meekness. You know he was a mighty God because they spit on him. You know he was a mighty God because they put thorns on his head. You know he was a mighty God because he allowed them to ridicule him. And Peter got all upset and said, hey, can I, can I fight for you? And Jesus said, no, brother, you don't understand. There's a legion of angels in heaven that will come at any time that I ask them to. But I'm going to show my might, but not stooping to your level. I'm going to show my might by staying on this cross. And I'm so glad that Jesus showed off his might on Calvary's cross. I'm so glad that he didn't allow people to talk him down. I'm so glad. Mighty, mighty God. He's an everlasting father. Is this a Trinitarian, is this Trinitarian confusion? Is Isaiah saying that Jesus is the Father, that the Father is Jesus? No, we know that this is not Trinitarian confusion, that Jesus is the Son and the Father is the Father and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. But rather, I think that this is a prophetic announcement of what Jesus would announce in John chapter 14, verse 18, when he tells his disciples that I will not leave you as orphans, that I will come back to you. Jesus is saying that. God is saying, listen, one day a child will be born, and this child will, will never leave you nor forsake you. And in the midst of your fears, you've got to believe God, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he will always be with you. And then he called him the Prince of Peace. Now, I've got to be honest, this is my favorite one, because if he is a wonderful counselor, then he is able to give me peace, no matter what my fear is. No matter what I'm afraid of, I've got to believe that when I go to Jesus and that when he's done with me, that everything is going to be all right. Now, peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is not the absence of trial. But peace is the presence of God in the midst of trial, in the midst of trouble. Peace is God being with you. Even when your world is crumbling, you are able to be sane because you know that God is there with you. And if God is for me, the psalmist said, who can be against me? Alan Gardner, an Anglican missionary, who was a missionary to South America, which was very close to the part that was very close to the North Pole. In 1851, his ship was forced to spend the winter in an isolated, cold, 
and cut off bay. And the supply ship that was supposed to come came, but it came too late. Alan Gardner and the other missionaries that were on board all died. Everyone on the ship died. But the last entry in Gardner's journal read something very peculiar. Even though he died of starvation and he died from, from hypothermia, he was able to pen this, these words in his last journal. The ship is a, this ship is a very Bethel to my soul. I am beyond all power of description. I am extremely happy. In the midst of starving to death, in the midst of being cold, this missionary said that this ship has become a Bethel. This ship has become a house of God to me. Why? Because even in the midst of starvation, God is with his people. Even in the midst of being frozen to death, if you have allowed Jesus to come into your heart, God can give you a peace. And that's what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. He says that God will give you a peace that passeth all understanding. When you really know Jesus, you know that Jesus is better than any supply ship. When you really know Jesus, you know that Jesus is better than your next breath. When you really know Jesus, you know that Jesus is better than a multitude of friends. When you really know Jesus, you know that Jesus is better than all the money in the world. When you really know Jesus, you know that Jesus is better than sex. Oh yeah, I said it. When you know Jesus, you know that he is the Prince of Peace. And wherever he is, that's where I want to be. Because that's where peace is. I can personally testify that there have been some times in my life where I thought I was going to lose my mind. But I'm so glad that God met me in my fears with the amazing gift of Jesus. There's been some times in my life when I thought I was going to go loco. There's been some times in my life if it had not been for the grace of God, I would have been on the national news for messing somebody up. But God made a way through Jesus. Paul said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, made under the law to redeem those who were under the law. I'm so glad that God sent Jesus. I'm so glad that he didn't leave me in Galilee deep in my darkness. I'm so glad that he makes a way out of no way. What is Assyria to God? What is Syria to God? What is Ephraim to God? What is a light bill to God? What is a bad marriage to God? What is cancer to God? What is a bad boat to God? What is an unsaved child to God? When you trust God, you'll find out that he'll make a way out of no way. My grandmother used to say, he's a bridge over troubled water. He's a way out of no way. He's a lawyer in the courtroom. He's a doctor in the doctor's room. I heard somebody say, he's a ball in Gilead, the Rose of Sharon. I heard somebody say, He's my propitiation. He's my ransom. He's my advocate. I heard somebody say that he's the lamb and the lion. 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords, my sanctuary, my peace, my love, my grace, my mercy, my God. If God is with you, who can be against you? Isaiah said, he's Emmanuel, 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 Emmanuel. I dare you to stand up to your fears. I dare you to stand up to your doubts. I dare you to stand up and say, Jesus, 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 my liaison, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Ain't he all right? He's all right. I said, he's all right. You can talk about me while I praise, but he's all right. You can talk about me while I dance, but he's all right. He's all right. Jesus. How sweet I know. Jesus. God meets us in our fears with the amazing gift of Jesus. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and he shall usher in a kingdom of justice and righteousness. I can't wait till Jesus comes back because he is gonna be the king of kings and the Lord of lords forever. Justice, righteousness will rule and his kingdom shall increase and his kingdom shall never end. Fiscal cliff, bring it on. I'm gonna stand firm and put my faith and trust in the one who is called wonderful. Father, we thank you. Thank you.